Good morning. It's Oxford Policy Podcast. My name is Eric Wyshenko. I am a Master of Public Policy student uh, in the Blavatnik School of Government, University of Oxford. And today we will talk to Lubomir Khaburski, Lesa Granger, and Mark Payne, founders of Muria 8, Canadian NGO that has provided close to $10 million of non-lethal military aid to Ukraine. Few NGOs actually decide to work in this area fraught with numerous regulatory risks and difficulties. So, Lesa, Lubomir, Mark, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Could you first of all tell us more about what exactly you are doing? Well, Maria 8 started uh, uh, within weeks, maybe even days after the invasion by Russia of Ukraine, the full-scale invasion now, uh, as opposed to the invasion of 10 years ago. Uh, a number of us had contacts, friends, and colleagues in Ukraine, all of whom wanted support of some kind, whether it was body armor helmets or things of that nature, to help them uh, to protect themselves in their participation as they volunteered for uh, well for territorial defense uh, units that were essentially at that time volunteers. So we decided to uh, put together our efforts and our, our networks to see what we could do to provide that kind of support. We were uh, calling each other, other individuals that were involved. And so we were then introduced to another group of individuals who happened to be members of the Canadian Armed Forces that were involved in several years of training by the Canadian Armed Forces under NATO of Ukrainian Armed Forces. And that was a training program under that was called Project Unifier. And they provided this training. So they too were receiving calls from their colleagues and friends that they made during the time that they were providing that training in Ukraine. We combined forces. And we combine our efforts. So, and and that's uh, in early March, uh, we created the organization Maria Aid. And our objective at that time uh, was clearly to focus on several lines of effort, so that we could competently, efficiently, and reliably uh, raise funds and provide um, items that were relevant and needed for reconnaissance missions. Uh, in Ukraine, and to ship to Ukraine, uh, especially to the front lines, uh, equipment of a medical and humanitarian nature to assist in uh, re the rehabilitation and the treatment of soldiers that were at the front line or support workers that were at the front line that uh, would be injured. So that's how we started. That was the the, the main intent for, for our work. And uh, we proceeded in that, on that basis. Why did you, did you decide to focus on these particular areas of support? These um, areas of support were uh, requested of us uh, by um, people uh, on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, these were contacts of ours. Uh, these were um, uh, various army units with uh, whom our uh, Canadian Armed Forces um, volunteer uh personnel had uh, had been working with uh, in the past uh, when they were in Ukraine, when they were deployed to Ukraine. And so these were personal connections and uh, um, people who, uh, you know, found themselves in this uh, unexpected and uh, uh, very uh, shocking crisis. And we were operating uh, very much in a uh, crisis response um, type of type of way. Uh, and uh, and so we were uh, we we at that time did have uh, five lines of um, effort, 
and uh, we provided uh, um, reconnaissance uh, drones, uh, night vision goggles, anything uh, that that could help uh, people save um, their life or the lives of their um, brothers and sisters in arms at that point, uh, which included uh, tourniquets as well. Um, and we were receiving quite a bit of um, medical and humanitarian uh, assistance, uh, various various supplies and hospital equipment. And so we were shipping uh, that out as well. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering what were the key crucial um, stages of the development of your NGO? Because in the discussions that we um early have with um, our students. Um, there was an interesting question about how you managed to build a trust, to build a reputation for your NGO when you started from scratch. So could you please tell about how it developed throughout these two years? So at the beginning, we <clears throat> uh, several in the, in the, of the individuals who were in our organization had friends who had started a radio uh, station on Twitter, our Twitter space effectively. And I should say at the outset that uh, All of the members, all of the individuals that were part of Media Aid uh, were volunteers. We all worked on a volunteer basis. So even as individuals who were in the Canadian Armed Forces, they worked on a volunteer basis with uh, with us. Um, and they were, of course, as a result of that, subject to conflict of interest guidelines. And those guidelines required that we keep a separation, a clear separation between us the media aid and what we did on one hand and a discussion in the public space on the other hand. For that reason, media aid was uh, was always separate from that Twitter space. However, given that they were um, supporters of us and they were uh, in you know good friends, I suppose, of, of our volunteers, they decided to uh, persuade their listeners, to make donations to Media Aid. And so most of our donations in that first year came from a number, a wide range of individuals who made donations directly to Media Aid, for which we accounted by way of audits uh, at the six-month mark and at the one-year mark. And we can talk a little bit about that uh, later. But just by to answer your question, how we evolved. So we had sufficient funds at that time from those donations because, of course, in those early months, people really wanted to do something. Everyone was shocked. Everyone didn't know how could this happen. And there were, uh, it was reported how many individuals needed to flee their homes, how much destruction was taking place. So it did uh, persuade a lot of people in the public to make donations. And that uh, resulted in us having sufficient funds to so do what we were in doing. In the initial stages of development, you managed to leverage a social media presence. Correct. To That's do you think, right. Do you think it's important for NGOs to develop this presence in social media? Well, in our case, I have to say that none of us had done this kind of work before. So we did not have the experience to do so or know what works in terms of promotion. So it just so happens that the events of the invasion, Russia's invasion against Ukraine, caused sufficient shock amongst the population and, and listeners that they, first of all, started to listen en masse to this Twitter space. They were listening to other broadcasts as well, of course, and that they felt moved to make these donations. So we 
did not need to engage as a typical NGO would uh, marketing, marketing techniques, promotional techniques in order to spread the word about what we were doing. The cause was there. The cause was being broadcast on news channels across the world and across media channels and across social media channels 24 hours a day. It was all about the invasion against Ukraine. So we didn't actually have to do that. We All we needed to do was receive the funds that were being generated by the shock among, among the white, uh, white public and turn that into useful practical support. So really to come back actually to your very first question, um, we decided to choose several lines of effort so that we're not spread thin and so that we can gain a competence in what we were doing. We thought that was really important. All of us had experience in the public service. All of us had experience in running programs uh, professionally. And we knew that it does not do anyone any good for us to do many things in which we do not have a lot of competence, which is why we selected the first line of effort that Lesha mentioned were, uh, was the shipment of medical equipment and humanitarian equipment and supplies. Well, they were coming into our hands. We needed to get it over there. And so that was a, that essentially required us to use our knowledge of logistics in order to receive, put into shipping containers, send the shipping containers over, over to Europe and get the shipping containers over to the front line. So knowledge of logistics. We had several individuals that were professionals in that regard. And so we were able to handle that quite nicely. The other lines of effort also arose from what we thought would be good areas to specialize in. Tourniquets, for example, is an area that, well, we had several individuals who had a medical background. They knew what tourniquets to order. We were aware that tourniquets were being marketed to all kinds of individuals by way of Amazon or other such platforms. And we knew that there were problems with multiple different kinds of uh, tourniquets that could not be verified. So with our background, with the background of our, of our volunteers in the medical field, in the military field, we knew that we needed to purchase just the top rate, the best tourniquets out there. Because when a tourniquet fails, it is a matter of life and death for the individual. When they need to rely on the tourniquet and it fails, they will likely die. And so we did not want to, um, you know, be at all, uh, you know, appurtenant to, to something like that happening. So we procured the best tourniquets we could and we shipped those. So those two lines of effort, very clear, did not require really much additional work on our part to learn and become competent. Then we decided to provide reconnaissance equipment. We were staying outside of the kill chain because that is not something that even as volunteers, members of the Canadian Armed Forces should be doing. So we stayed outside of that. And so we were focused on drones with thermal vision and we, and we focused on night vision goggles. And that's what we did. So for the first stage, to answer your question, the first stage of media aid in 2022 were those four lines of effort. And then we progressed into something else, but I think I'm speaking for too long. I should let my colleagues uh, uh, jump in here and say something. Mark, do you have any additions? If I, if I think about uh, when the organization was founded and some of the things that it had to naturally evolve through um, any, any organization, be it a, a, a not-for-profit, an NGO, or a commercial corporation, has to go through a number of stages. And I know that we will all recognize the words... Um, 
forming, storming, norming, and performing as as the dynamics of an organization to to uh, proceed ahead. And and the organization did do each one of those steps. Uh, one of the most important things uh, for us to consider was the internal governance of the organization, to make sure that we had the structures in place by which we could demonstrate to others um, that we were well-grounded, that we were well-governed, we were well-organized, and we could then perform well. And this becomes very important to us uh, when we talk to partners and even more so when we talk to donors so that they know that we are solid and we have a, a, a very strong foundation upon which we have built this organization. So the audit that Lubomir spoke about that we did at six months was extremely critical and it was something that was extremely well received uh, by individuals because nobody else was doing this. Lots of organizations stood up after the invasion. Um, lots of them did not have structures in place to guarantee success. And success for us is not that we as members of the board or the organization are, you know, we're doing wonderful things. It's that the people on the other end are receiving what they need when they need it um, so that they can be effective in repulsing the invaders, but also um, that we have been able to provide things that are of a caring nature, um, such as some of the humanitarian hospital uh, equipment that we've delivered. So to go from A to Z, you have to put all those structures in place. Um, and it's an evolution for organizations, but it's absolutely critical that these these pieces are put in place. Right. At which point did you start working with Canadian government? And today, how you invest and engage in these government relations? Government relations. Uh, so as, a, as an NGO, um, we have to consider whatever source of funding that we can tap into. Um, so be that uh, private sector or public sector. Um, so the public sector, being a former civil servant and being a former artillery officer, I know some of these levers that are out there and some of the programs that government has. So we have had to do the exploration of what programs exist, but more so it's the network of people that we know. Lubomir knows lots of people, Lesia knows lots of people, I know lots of people. Other players in our team and in the uh, the larger uh, donation space know lots of people. So having those contacts and being able to influence things is really what it is. You have to know the levers to be able to operate the levers, know the rules to be able to get in there and then talk to the individuals in the government as to what we're doing. I'll let Lesia answer the question of how long have we been speaking with the government? Yes, so uh, of course uh, we we have been um, very mindful of reaching out and uh, communicating, of course, with our donors to let them know uh, that their donations and uh, kind gestures and um, sometimes even desperate calls to to uh, figure out how they can work with us to help and to make um, an impact in Ukraine. Um, in addition to communicating with, with the donors and partners, we, we also uh, communicated with our friends and colleagues uh, who are in embassies and in, in various government departments 
to get a sense of, of what is needed and what else is being done so that we are sure not to duplicate and not to... Uh, not not to overstep as well and to uh, ensure that everybody uh, is doing what they can in a way that makes sense and that is uh, fairly aligned to the extent possible. And so for the first year, it, it really was... Uh, a little bit of everything, and we were we were um, still needing to go through that process of um, of providing whatever we could. And then the second year, um, we had a chance to reflect and to narrow that down. And so, uh, to come back to your question, uh, we were um, about about. Um, uh, working with government, we were fortunate uh, that one of our uh, volunteers in Ukraine, working in Central Europe, uh, was a former. Um, I'm just trying to think of her uh, her position. It was uh, it was cultural advisor and translator to um, to our one of our founders, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Melanie Lake. Um, and this uh, this volunteer of ours uh, immediately threw herself into the work of demining and working with a training uh, a demining training center or a mine action training center actually in Central Europe. And, uh, and demining is now a huge problem in Ukraine because it's probably one of the most mined countries in the in the world. Up to thirds of the territory is at least under danger of being mined. Yes, and it's uh, it's the mines that are dangerous, and the munitions and ordinances uh, or or ordinance rather uh, that is uh, now scattered uh, throughout the country, uh, both in uh, the deoccupied areas, uh, the areas um, um, around Kiev and Chernihiv, and in in, in the north um, that have been deoccupied and now need to be cleared of the ordinance, and then it's uh, actually throughout the country because. Uh, the country has been uh, um, attacked and bombed um, throughout. So uh, it's not just, uh, for instance, uh, you know, landmines on the front lines or, uh, you know, all the way down that uh, that very long border with Russia. Um, and so uh, we were we were very fortunate that uh, our volunteer was working with uh, the Mine Action Center in Central Europe from April 2022, so from the very beginning, essentially. And she had developed uh, relationships with the general staff of the um, Armed Forces of Ukraine and also with the Canadians, uh, Canadian representatives in Ukraine, in Kyiv. And so we were very fortunate to have, through and with her aid, um, been able to apply for funding, which uh, we are uh, uh, hoping will uh, come through, uh, to in order to support uh, demining in Ukraine, because this really, as you say, is a absolutely crucial, crucial area of effort that will need many, many decades of work. But it has to be tackled. One has to begin somewhere. And so, uh, you know, we're we're very lucky to have a track record in that area and to be working um, on on various projects with uh, with various players and partners. Let me just add to that. Um, why demining, and how do we choose that? 
I think that's worthwhile just pausing for a minute on on that because that has now become our our main line of effort, and it also explains. Uh, why it is that we approached and sought, sought out uh, funds from the Canadian government, the Department of National Defence and Global Affairs Canada and, and other charitable foundations. In the fall of 2022, we had already funded a number of uh, members of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, the National Guard, the State Emergency Services and the State Special Transportation Services. We funded their training in Central Europe. Uh, each of these training um, uh, sessions is a, is a course that lasts between eight and ten weeks because they, they complete certification at level three or three plus of the International Mine Action Standards. So it's a very substantive uh, training regime. And so we understood at that time, having done so and having learned more about what that was, what what's entailed, that this is an area that requires a lot of support. Because uh, for the reasons, as you mentioned, Eric, uh, Ukraine is, and Lasha mentioned, Ukraine is heavily mined. I will add to, to what both of you said, which is to say it's not only heavily mined, but it has now uh, seen the most innovative measures and techniques of mining and booby trapping that has ever existed. So the, the, it is a much more complex uh, contamination and environment. In fact, there are overlapping environments of, con- of, a mine, of, of mines and unexploded ordnance contamination, each of which requires a very different and unique approach. And these techniques are, are becoming so if I can use the word sophisticated, although that word typically connotes a positive connotation, but in this case it's not, a very uh, very complex and intricate uh, method of booby-trapping and and setting up mines uh, with the intention to kill and maim, uh, such that, for example, um, the fuses in a landmine, let's say there's an anti-personnel mine or a tank, uh, a mine directed for for uh, to to disable a tank, uh, the fuses typically, uh, when taken out, will disable the mine. But the new technique developed is to place a second detonator within, such that when the first fuse is taken out, that triggers the mine as the operator is working on, on disfusing it. So that's only one of multiple different techniques that we're seeing in Ukraine. So to answer your question, why demining? Well, we understood that because of these various techniques and the broad use of mines, this will take a long time. This will take many years. Some people say decades to deal with it. Uh, When you consider the many structures that have been mined, each of those structures have to be demined before a bulldozer or excavator can actually go in to raise the destroyed buildings in order to, to build new ones. Because if the bulldozer or construction equipment comes into contact with a mine or a booby trap, it will explode and perhaps cause damage not only to the machinery, but injury or death to the operator. So it is a very complex and intricate uh, environment. I will only add as well as a parenthesis that there are multiple artillery shells that have been cast in that direction that have not exploded and that now also pose that that potential. So we knew this is going to be a very long-term task. And the more people that can be trained in this, the better. And so that's why we set out to focus on demining. We also knew as Canadians that demining is a premier initiative of Canada. 
uh, politicians and members of government do pride themselves that Canada led the way in terms of the Mine Convention. And so we knew that this is something uh, behind which the Canadian government would feel very comfortable to get behind it, right, and to and to support it. It, it was even signed in Canada, I think. Correct. Yeah. It was indeed. And so we felt this is a good opportunity to to work in an area demining that Canada already likes to support and likes to 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 demonstrate to other countries is worthy of, of support. And that's why Lesha and our other volunteers uh, reached out to the Canadian government and they were very receptive to our to our proposals to, um, to use and create a program to, uh, well, not to create, but to expand the program that we already had in place to pay for training of, uh, of officers of the armed forces uh, in humanitarian demining and also to um, pay for special blast equipment in other words protective gear for for a deminer to avoid uh, injury uh, when they're working on a mine that might explode as they're doing so right um, in view of the importance of this work why do you think so few NGOs are actually engaged in this in this area of work what are the difficulties of of working with with the mining or with other kinds of military non-lethal aid I think the the problem for 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 this area in particular is the innovation. There is so much innovation t- taking place, and uh, innovation in terms of mining techniques, mining techniques, correct booby trapping techniques. I will say that for, uh, let me let me illustrate it from a different perspective. We were uh, in 2022 uh, working with several organizations, several um, suppliers, actually on drones, reconnaissance drones. But it was a difficult area to work in because the techniques of electronic warfare and jamming were were were, were being developed within leaps and bounds. And so as uh, suppliers were developing their own techniques on how to send data packets of video and telemetry back to the controller and to do so in a way that would survive the electronic uh, jamming, new techniques were being developed. So it, it, one of the reasons it's hard to work in this area is that, is the, is the d- degree of, of innovation. Now, that does also apply to demining, of course, but we felt at the very least, the very base necessity here is to train people how to do the demining work in a way that's safe and to have the protective equipment to save themselves if something wrong happens. So regardless of how much innovation there is in terms of how to booby trap, how to um, to do demining, how many ordinances are in the field and in, in embankments buried in the ground where they fell, regardless of all of that, there still is a base basic need for that training and a basic need for the protective equipment. And that's why we thought this is an area we should focus on. One of the differences that I've seen <clears throat> with um, what we're trying to do with demining, as opposed to some of the other NGOs who also operate within this sphere, is we're actually trying to see the demining and the training of these individuals um, so that they can operate where there is an actual invasion going on. Um, Cambodia used to be one of the most demine, or sorry, one of the most mined countries in the world. There's still a lot of mining, demining exercises going on over there, but it's peaceful. 
Sri Lanka is peaceful. There's demining going there. We're actually doing this in, a, in an environment where things are not as secure as these other places. So it's extremely important for us as an NGO um, to make sure that kit that we purchase, that the training that is given uh, is useful, uh, can be applied immediately. And the fact that we are training people to the IMAS 3 and 3 plus standards, so we've trained the trainers effectively, will increase the capacity within Ukraine to be able to teach Ukrainians as well how to do this stuff. But it's really important they have the kit. When I, if, when I was in the army, if I didn't have my kit, I would not be effective. I, I, it would be dangerous to me. So we need to make sure they have the right, the right tools to get the job done. Having those skill sets, being able to spread that knowledge to others is critical. So in training, uh, for us, in training, it is, we're just going to see a, a payback way down the line for the Ukrainian uh, um, deminers. And it's not just the military folk, it's the support folks. Almost everyone there is going to have to learn how to deal with these things, be it just from identifying them in the field, fencing them off, putting a flag there so someone else can come and remove it, right to the actual destruction of the unexploded ordnance and artillery shells, the amount of artillery shells that Russia has, has thrown at Ukraine it's just mind-boggling. And as a former artillery officer, I think, I think of my time on the gun position, um, I just, it just boggles my mind how many um, shells have landed up. And some are, as Lubomir said, duds. They haven't exploded. And those things are extremely dangerous for a D-miner because you, depending on the type of fuse that is being used, be it a point detonating, a variable time fuse, uh, and also what is in the actual shell itself, um, it's extremely dangerous because you don't know if that fuse is obviously, it is going to actually start working again mm. while you're actually doing it. So you have to take extreme number of precautions when you're doing that. And of course, aerial bombs as well. You don't know when that thing is going to actually try and kick in again. Uh, I would also uh, add that, uh, you know, generally in terms of uh, an NGO working in the military space, uh, and one um, that is so unprecedented, uh, you know, we haven't seen a war like this in, since the Second World War um, uh, on this scale and, and, uh, and with the, the sort of uh, atrocities that uh, we're also uh, witnessing. Uh, I would also say, uh, just to also come back to uh, Mark's point about, you know, his experience, for example, um, in military uh, Jargon, military spaces, uh, uh, the application of uh, of various, uh, you know, of whether it's a mindset or technical uh, knowledge, uh, we definitely, uh, as an organization, I think what what does set us apart and and where we've definitely um, benefited from uh, our volunteers and uh, our partners, who are retired uh, army officers. Um, so originally we started with volunteers who were um, mostly retired army officers, some active, and, and eventually uh, they, uh, they stepped back because, you know, they had uh, other responsibilities to, uh, to get back to once, uh, once, you know, 
people were there were there were enough people helping Ukraine, and uh, and and our um, organization grew uh, in the first year. Um, and uh, how big is your organization now, by the way? Well, we have a circle of volunteers, which you know, frankly, is not is not huge. <laughs> We've got about fifteen uh, or so, fifteen to twenty uh, volunteers. All of us work on a volunteer basis. Uh, nobody has a, a salary. There are no uh, positions, if you will, other than the governance positions, uh, which would be the board of directors. Uh, and then leads, you know, we've got uh, we've got a medical lead. We've got um, uh, also a, a, a explosive uh, ordnance disposal um, coordinator in Central Europe and, and in Ukraine. Uh, and most of our volunteers are um, in Canada, though. Uh, and um, yes, I would say that that also just to come back to your question about uh, the military space and working in that and in the current context, uh, you know, we, we we have all of these regulations that were put in place uh, before and policies that were put in place uh, before, <laughs> and so they had to change and evolve. And that meant, you know, that various NGOs had to get together and convince governments to speed things up, to to make things more accessible to the various players in the field now that were not just militaries and governments providing aid to Ukraine uh, and uh, providing, for example, the non-lethal military aid. Uh, and so th- this has been a, a challenging space, I think, for everybody to navigate. Whether whether a person is uh, is is the policy uh, advisor, <laughs> you know, sort of urging the government to, to the various governments to 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 move things along, uh, or whether it's the people working on the ground, and uh, as well as the recipients of the aid, you know, waiting for for aid often longer than than is uh, ideal, but uh, everybody doing their best in that space. I think it's worth mentioning um, to follow up on uh, continue with what what Lasha was saying is that we adopted a principle as volunteers that we will always do this on a non-commercial basis, non-commercial. In other words, we wanted to ensure that the donors of the funds, whether they be private, whether they be charitable foundations, whether they be a government agency or a department, knew that all of the funds that are provided to us for these programs that we have, in this case for demining, will go to the training and the provision of protective equipment. And none of it stays in our hands as, as a matter of, a, of commercial interest. So we are totally non-commercial in that sense, and we always will be. So that's a, a very important point that we wanted to to make sure everyone knows. The second point is that we felt it is truly important, and we do, and we, let me just say the, the principle first. We are true, it's very important for us to develop a competence in what we do. We will never be a service provider. We will never build protective equipment, and we will never provide the, uh, the training ourselves as an entity because we don't have the competence to do so and we don't have the ability to attain that competence. So what is our role? We defined our role very specifically. And we defined our role in a way where we can gain a competence in that role. So the role is to find sources of funds and to get those funds to service providers who do have the competence to provide training or to build protective equipment. And then so that those service providers could deliver their training and the protective equipment to an end user, 
of specific unit of either the armed forces of Ukraine, the National Guard of Ukraine, if it's a military in nature, or entities such as the state emergency services or the state special transportation service that are more civilian entities involved in the, in the demining space and to establish relationships. So we have relationships with the, the source of funds. We have well-established relationships with service providers and relationships established with the end user. And in that way, we are competent in the delivery chain. In other words, getting money turned into a service or a training service or material or protective equipment. And then that, uh, that those services ending up in, in the hands of an end user that can then put it into real effect and real use at the front lines for, well, front lines or in the areas where humanitarian demanding needs to take place uh, on the ground. So for us, <clears throat> it was important as an NGO to to not only gain that competence uh, in, in this area, but also to communicate that that is what we are focusing upon and that uh, we are going to be very, very, very much focused just on that. One of the other things that's very important to us is that we also have to project to others. Uh, we need to project out to our governments. We need to project ourselves out to potential partners, other individuals and organizations who are working in this space. So um, the information that we provide is critical to influencing. So um, we are a small organization of volunteers, Every penny that is is uh, that comes in, it's aimed at Ukraine. Um, nobody gets a salary, um, which is very unlike a lot of other NGOs who have a considerable amount of money. Um, we don't do that. We are focused solely on Ukraine. So the influence uh, is important. One of the things that we did um, last year uh, for Day of the Defenders as we held an event in Ottawa and we brought together people from industry, from government and from other um, NGOs, like-minded organizations. And this generated all kinds of goodwill, um, led to a number of other things that we are now able to, um, to play in and influence even more. Um, and it's, it's like bringing together a united front of, of individuals, like-minded individuals, people who are concerned. And I think that is one of our, one of our major roles is influencing others, getting them on board, um, because we as an organization can't do it by ourselves. We need others. Um, so that generating that goodwill is also um, based on our reputation. So, which is why the audits were done, um, which is why we're in constant communication with partners, with donors, um, and why we're here as well. We are spreading the word. We want people to focus on Ukraine. We don't want this to be forgotten. And I know that there's been a lot of fatigue within the donor world, um, but we cannot stop because if we stop and if the world stops, then we are in more peril than what we are actually seeing right now through Russia invading Ukraine. Yes, that's true. Um, I'm wondering, in view of the importance of, of the reputation in your work, um, have you faced any attacks, any attempts uh, to tarnish your reputation? 
Yes, yeah, actually multiple. And uh, let me just uh, dig into that a little bit further. Uh, as I mentioned in the first year, we were very much based on our, our, our flow of funds or the source of funds were donors who are listening to a radio uh, Twitter space. And so we were anyway, very... Just, just to jump in, yes. what are the proportions of different sources of funds in the overall... I have to tell you that as I sit here, I don't have that figure. Uh, but I would but say... Just approximately. Yeah, so at the beginning, it was all donor funds, right. all of it. And uh, we don't know when people came on our website whether they did so as a listener of the Twitter space or not. We, we have no way to parse that, parse the figures in that extent. But the Twitter space and Twitter as a, as a, as an, uh, I suppose, a social media platform was uh, very important to us. But as everyone who has used Twitter and other social media platforms know, it is also an area in which a controversy um, is what attracts attention. And when, and the, the algorithms themselves are designed, as we all know, I'm not saying anything out of turn here, I don't believe, but where the where the algorithms of the social media platform, Twitter in this case, is designed to emphasize and accentuate where there is controversy, where there is debate, where there are attacks, personal or otherwise. So uh, we became known and our efforts became known to those who did not want those efforts to succeed fill in the blank. And so we were then put on the Russian sanctions list, for example, for the work that we were doing. Um, but they didn't that stop there. an official sanction list by the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Correct. Yes. And, but the efforts didn't, their efforts didn't stop there. Um, they have developed very useful techniques of how to use social media to promote their agenda. And in this case, their agenda is to make ineffective organizations or NGOs that do work like ours. And so they attacked us on Twitter in uh, in the ways that they know how to. Uh, and they started uh, lying and throwing out not scandalous, but uh, libelous um, accusations, uh, defamatory accusations uh, against us in Twitter. And of course, the more you do that, the more attraction, more attention it attracts. We were counseled. We sought out advice from people that know how to handle this kind of thing that we should not respond. And the reason we should not respond is the more we respond to such false accusations, the more air it gives to the fire and the more attention it attracts because the algorithms is picking up on the controversy and will spread it further. So we understood we just needed not to respond. We have our official responses, we put on our website and such, but we did not engage in a polemic in the Twitter space. So we were attacked there. But then those who wanted us to, to stop our effective work took the next step. And they found a journalist, a journalist, as you know, you know, that uh, I, I can't speak about the uh, area of journalism in, in, in Britain, but there are those journalists in the North America that will, will follow a certain narrative. And so one of them picked up this narrative and started to propound it as well in, 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 in articles. And so we needed to respond to that too. And we couldn't really do so effectively in the, on the social media space because that only, again, gave more attention to it. So yes, we were attacked, but we've learned to uh, respond in a way where we continue doing our work. 
we continue co to communicate about our work. And then the, um, the energy of those attacks dissipate because they see there's very little traction. They're not getting us to rise to the occasion. They're not getting us to, to respond back. And so the algorithms lose interest in, in those stories. But uh, yes, we certainly were attacked and we expect to be attacked in the future. Uh, so with the benefit of hindsight, you can say that not reacting to this attack was the right strategy? We response. believe so. We'll never know what would have happened if we had uh, tried to aggressively defend ourselves or to attack back. But uh, we do believe that it, given that um, many of these attacks have, have died down and have run out of, run out of fuel, so to speak, uh, we believe that was the right approach. And the advice given to us to that extent was the right one. I think we also uh, engaged in um, a stronger advocacy campaign um, to bring attention and keep bringing attention, keep bringing attention back to what really is the the area of focus that everybody should be should be, you know, united in, and that is Ukraine and helping Ukraine. And so, when we were when we were attacked, uh, whether it that was in some traditional media uh, and certainly uh, in the in social media spaces, we very actively, uh, I know I spent dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of hours reaching out to partners and touching base and making sure that, uh, you know, people understand the, the space of disinformation. Um, and of course, uh, our partners understood it very well, and, and it was very comforting in the sense that uh, they they would tell us that they were attacked as well in various different ways. Uh, comforting, I suppose, maybe maybe isn't the best word, but uh, but but it, but there was a certain comfort in that, knowing that we weren't weren't the only ones uh, or the exception, uh, and also knowing that people understand and that that we we can you know really return the focus to where, where it needs to be to uh, supporting Ukraine. And we found, like Mark was uh, you know, mentioning earlier, uh, we found that networking and, and organizing opportunities for networking and very large scale networking was, uh, was something that was very much needed and very much appreciated by, by partners and by uh, new partners and uh, future partners as well. Um, I know that I worked on a newsletter and I uh, try to issue it uh, as regularly as I can. I, I don't always succeed, but it, it, this is a Substack uh, letter uh, or rather short article um, that also brings in information, uh, cultural information uh, about Ukraine to our readers. We have approximately 800 readers. It's a fairly modest uh, um, circle of, uh, of, of interest there, um, but they're short and, they, and they're, they're interesting, I think, uh, to people uh, as well. And, and the idea is to encourage and motivate and, and keep the uh, discourse uh, and focus on Ukraine. Interesting. I think we will try to leave the link to this Substack newsletter in the commentary section of our podcast. No, oh, great. That would be very Thank nice. you. Yeah. So you make a point of maintaining constant personal communication with the key stakeholders as a kind of one of the shields that allows you to protect yourself against this, this kind of disinformation campaigns. Well, I can tell you this. Um, anyone who's attacked especially attacked personally or attacked in a way that that uh, accuses one of a nefarious conduct or lack of integrity is very hurtful personally. Uh, 
And uh, anyone who has been subjected to that kind of false attack or defamatory attack knows the emotions that that generates. And it's really awful, to tell you the truth. And in fact, some members just had it too much uh, to be attacked that way, even though it was uh, it was all false. So we've had to guard ourselves and we've had to manage our, our own personal emotions to look past that. And so we've done so. And we do so by focusing on the task at hand. So, for example, instead of worrying about what, what is being said about us, we spend our time, and instead of responding to it, we spend our time on actually doing more work, on finding the funds, on establishing the relationships with service providers and then users. And in that way, by focusing on something we can control, we actually deal with the emotions that come when you are personally attacked. Now, this is a, a well-known psychological, uh, if I can put it this way, uh, a psychological this, dynamic. This, this is, sounds like a tenet of stoicism. Sorry? Like a tenet of stoicism, you know, the principle of stoic well, the pr philosophy. The principle being that if uh, focus on what you can control, um, you know, there are uh, multiple uh, offer, uh, authors about this. Fred Kaufman, for example, in his in his book uh, Conscious Business, uh, laid out the the theory of the player mentality and the victim mentality. I encourage everyone to read it when you have time. But uh, the the the, perp the the point of, of its relevance here is that we chose to deliberately adopt a player mentality by focusing what we can control and what we can do, rather than worry about being the victim of uh, these these attacks. So that's how we've dealt with it. And uh, uh, we feel encouraged that uh, we're able to do that. And, you know, like I said earlier, speaking with others, uh, whether they're partners or just people who are like-minded and doing similar work uh, in various contract tax, uh, in various contexts and across the globe, um, you know, we... we we have comforted one another in a sense. And, and we also, and, and that, I suppose, level of comfort uh, includes a self-confidence and, and, and a sort of putting these attacks into perspective. So, so the way I see it is, uh, is that, you know, when we, when we drive somewhere um, and we encounter other drivers who are mostly polite, but occasionally there's somebody who for whatever reason, is um, experiencing a bout of road rage. Well, you know, we, we can't take that personally. Uh, we have to just remain calm and uh, steer clear of that person. Uh, because I do think that what happens on social media is akin to road, road rage in the sense that they don't know us. And so if they, if they feel angry about what's happening in Ukraine, or if they just don't like support for Ukraine or or have some other issue that they that they have with their own government um, they they just lash out in that space because they they're lashing out into a void essentially an ether space um, and it's it's similar uh, th this is why it's important for us to have that personal connection and to and for the organization to have a face and the accountability as well, the, the, the sort of public transparency, because then it's harder for certain people to, to, to attack us uh, mm -hmm. when, when, we're, when we are real people making a real impact yeah. in Ukraine. 
I wanted to just add that and amplify something that Alessia is saying here. And that is, um, we've been fortunate enough to have a lot of interaction with students with, well, here we are at Oxford talking with you and, and other students at Oxford. But we've done this with uh, multiple cohorts of students uh, from Ukraine as well at the graduate level. And so we do get asked the following question. What do I do to progress my career? How is this relevant? Well, it's relevant because the advice we give to them is the following. We say, use your time as a student to develop competence in a body of knowledge, a body of knowledge that you want to focus upon. And as you develop your knowledge in that area, whatever body of knowledge it is, uh, you will gain the confidence your own confidence in in acting in that area, in communicating in that area, in acting in that area. And so that really comes back to the very first principle I talked about at the beginning, which is we decided to focus on a few areas and gain competence and knowledge in those areas so that we could have the confidence. In that way, when we are attacked or if someone is trying to undermine us, we can actually speak with confidence about what we're doing. And then the donor community and government agencies that are potential sources of funds and the uh, charitable foundations that are also potential uh, sources of funds will sense that we know what we're talking about, that we have the confidence in these areas and we are not being distracted by the attacks that come from the sidelines. Mm-hmm. Taking a helicopter view on on this situation, on the disinformation campaigns, I think the biggest, uh, the largest in scale disinformation campaigns were launched uh, by Russia back, I would say, in 2016, when there were large-scale election interference in Europe and in the US. Before that, in 2014, uh, we, we saw a mass disinformation campaign related to the trying to whitewash and justify the unlawful actions related to the annexation of Crimea and, and occupation of, of the territories in eastern Ukraine. Do you think that in 2024, um, Canadian and overall the Western societies are more prepared to overcome this disinformation, to treat it and to, to discern really what's the truth and what is just false narrative? I think less so, actually, but Mark, go ahead. I think that we are, I think that we're more aware of this. Um, but I think that the uh, the information manipulation and disinformation that's been applied by Russia for years and years and years, and this goes right back to the Cold War days, where they're trying to influence people in other countries. They're um, putting their proxies in there. Um, this is they're trying to undermine this for many, 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 many years. So. Um, you know, the examples that you gave, um, has the West, you know, has Europe and, and North America woken up to this? Um, I think yes, but I also think no, because I think this is very deeply ingrained. Um, and that's bothersome. Um, and for us, we know that there's disinformation out there. Uh, we know that it's targeted. We also know that it's the old notion of damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. We are not going to be distracted by this. We have an aim and we're going to remain focused on it. I think the Western world and and, and North America um, or Europe and North America um, need to put in place a number of 
educational tools for people. And I know some organizations have started to do this where they say, identify that site. Is it fact? Is it true? Um, you know, dig deeper to find out where the source is actually coming from. Because Russia is going to continue and continue and continue uh, to pour money into the information space um, so that they are gaining the upper hand in the information war. Um, I, you know, I, I'm sure we can all recount the, uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, bio labs with mosquitoes that <laughs> yeah. were targeted at Russians. Uh, it's absolutely nonsense. Um, but but there, people bought into this. But they aired these stories in the meetings of the Security Council. Yes. Yes, that's right. That's right. And yes, I, I agree. We all, all of our societies, our, our free societies will we'll have uh, decades of work uh, with, uh, with, of course, the, the demining we spoke of uh, s s earlier, uh, demining in Ukraine, and then, uh, you know, um, dealing with disinformation and the various, uh, the various attacks to undermine uh, democracy and uh, the values that we hold dear and our societies as well. And so I think that working with civil societies, uh, NGOs and networking, uh, the work will continue. And this is very much part of our work, even though it's not, you know, our main area of focus. But it definitely is something that we will continue working on uh, because we have no choice. And if we want to to survive as as a as a society, if I could <laughs> sort of use it in that global sense, uh, that's what that's what we have to continue to do. I want to answer your question as well um, from a policy perspective, from public policy perspective, and it's the following. So um, we have never, and I'm speaking uh, about this as a layperson, not as someone who's an expert in, in 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 questions of disinformation. So let me make that caveat very clear at the very outset. Uh, we have never been concerned about the decision makers. Those in positions of uh, decision making, um, uh, decision making positions, whether it's political or or not political, who have decided, who are deciding what kind of support to provide to Ukraine and what kind of support to help Ukraine uh, repel the invasion of Russia never been really concerned about the disinformation. They know what it, what the truth is and they're not being bamboozled. However, they also do need to respond and deal with public opinion, especially in countries that are democratic, that have elections, where the elections have a real practical impact on how funds are used. I don't need to be an expert, and none of us need to be an expert to see how public opinion has been moved in the United States uh, and how that has affected the decisions about whether funds will be provided to you, to, to send uh, requested weapons and Western weapon systems to Ukraine and how that has actually stopped. So disinformation in this particular case is being used very effectively on that public opinion. And what a better time to do that than the year of a presidential election, especially when there is one particular candidate who is not going to be very, very supportive of, of what's happening in Ukraine and has already declared himself so in, in multiple situations as well as his supporters. So how is that, uh, how does that feed into your question about disinformation and whether it's going to be a problem? I happen to believe that 
Russia is has become much better at using social media and other avenues to directly affect so the, the the public opinion, which in turn will affect the decision makers who will decide the support. Back in 2016, you started your question with 2016, and you and you also referred to um, the uh, invasion of Crimea and its annexation. At that time, the techniques of that Russia used to influence public opinion through social media were new. Some of those became well known, in fact. Um, in uh, well, I don't need to get into the details, but but the techniques used around 2016 became known, and that became scandalous. So they've developed newer techniques, and they're able to influence uh, the public opinion through much more insidious, less uh, discoverable techniques of using social media and the algorithms of social media in order to influence public opinion and to see the discord and to see the polarization, which then affects how politicians make their decisions. And and so I believe that they have been very effective. I mean, there are very good articles. In fact, uh, very recently in, in the Atlantic, there was a, a, a very good article from one particular senator who um, has, has made themselves quite famous for not being aligned closely to other senators of the Republican Party, where he revealed how the decisions in the Senate and in the House of Representatives is affected by very short-term considerations of electability and how the electorate will vote. Well, that electorate is being influenced heavily by social media, which is being heavily manipulated by those who need to manipulate it to create that social media. So to answer your question, I am fearful, actually, and very anxious that the techniques that Russia has developed and will continue to, to develop will spread disinformation in a way that will affect public opinion, that in turn will affect the, the results of the election, and that in effect after that will affect how much support Ukraine receives from, from Western countries. And of course, we fear what the result of that will be on the front line. Yeah. Um, on the 24th of February, we will commemorate uh, the second anniversary of the full-scale invasion of the Russian Federation uh, by the Russian Federation of Ukraine. Um, and as you said, uh, we are approaching the U.S. presidential elections. And I'm just wondering, what is your general view of the situation after two years of this very difficult um, fight of the Ukrainian nation for its independence? Do you think that the way Ukraine and its Western allies manage this very difficult process of of resisting Putin is adequate for the seriousness of the challenge. And what do you think can be the realistic, pragmatic scenarios for the development of this war? What do you see could be the future uh, for Ukraine in the coming years? which is a very, very complicated question. It is indeed. I could say that uh, we should focus and celebrate, uh, especially around the 24th, um, the, the accomplishments and the... They did come at a great price and they are continuing at a great price, a great sacrifice that the Ukrainians individually and as a society have made. And continue what, to make. What is the biggest accomplishment for you in these two years? The f 
just the fact of not being taken over by right. a, a world power um, that as 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 corrupt and and rotten as it is, um, you know, even in terms of uh, substandard equipment. Um, Despite that, Russia is a huge power, and the fact that it has been resisted is a huge accomplishment. And that does need to be kept in mind uh, as we, you know, look forward to, frankly, a fairly bleak um, future, the bleak next few years. They will be very difficult, and that's why I, I think we have to double down, whether we're a small organization um uh, you know, like media aid, or whether we are a government, you know, um, and as and as a society. So it will be the question will be, what more and what else do we need to do to counter that disinformation and to ensure that we're we're only going to a place that uh, builds on what the Ukrainians have done and are doing because uh, it's a huge feat. Uh, Great accomplishment and very, very important, but a lot of work ahead of us. For something that was supposed to have ended in three to four days, the fact that we are now approaching the second year absolutely demonstrates the commitment of the Ukrainian people to Ukraine um, and the aim of regaining their sovereign territory. Um, I am concerned of fatigue, not only within Ukraine, but also in the supporting nations. I am concerned about some of the upcoming elections in Europe and in North America and how that could influence the outcome. The outcome that we're all striving for is Ukrainian victory, period. That's it. It's a very simple victory, done. Um, but I'm very concerned about the commitment um, of the West to keep providing um, the tools that are required. We, we saw the, the, the cries from Ukraine about close the air. It took a long time before they started to get things to do that. They're still missing vital tools, the air superiority that they're going to need to be able to actually kick out um, the Russians from the country. They still need uh, more air defense systems. Without that, more people are going to die. They still need more artillery. Without that, more Ukrainians are going to die. Um, so the Western world's commitment um, to Ukraine cannot falter. If it does, Ukraine will not exist in the shape that we know it. And so I don't really, you know, I look upon a lot of people saying, oh, we're tired, we're tired, we're tired in the West. It's like, you're tired? How do you think the people in Ukraine feel about this? I'm heading back there on Friday, and I'm very interested in seeing what the mood is amongst uh, my, my friends and relatives who are there. I want to answer your question in two parts. So the first part that I want to say, first of all, there's going to be a caveat. And the caveat is I'm answering a question in which I'm not competent to answer. Right. I read news, I read analysis articles as well, but I don't profess to have the competence and the knowledge of the conditions on the battlefield or the flow of weapons or what's required to, to really give you an answer that's in any way reliable about what will happen, to prognosticate and predict what will happen. So that's my first caveat. However, uh, I read uh, articles just like everyone else does and, and uh, see various analyses from different uh, perspectives. There has been uh, a very 
interesting an analysis, uh, I suppose, that came out of a French journalist. I, 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 at the moment, I don't remember her name. But she voiced the opinion that I've seen tentatively voiced in other parts, but that seems to catch a bit of the tenor of, of what may be going on, and it's the following. Um, Western uh, nations and those who identify themselves as allies of Ukraine in this fight against the Russian invasion do want Ukraine to exist. They do want Ukraine not to be defeated, and they will provide the support needed for that for that purpose as well. But they also do not want Russia to fail. They are afraid of the red lines. They are afraid of Russia falling apart and what will happen in the vacuum that will that will uh, arise afterwards. And so they are walking. This journalist expressed the opinion that they are walking a very fine line to provide enough to stop the invasion from going forward, but in a way that it won't cause Russia to fail. That is the dangerous line. We've seen that line being drawn by, by uh, people in power. And I'm seeing people in power because this goes back for centuries now, uh, even in, in the last century where politicians have drawn a very fine line in terms of how they wish, you know, a potential conflict to unfold. And I believe that's what's, that may explain why a number of the weapon systems that could have been provided quickly, effectively, and 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 deliberately were not provided in a timely fashion. Things that Ukraine has asked for, Ukraine has had to wait for and for a very long time. And of course, some of the consequences are the are is the pseudo kiv line that uh, has been heavily mined and that we're now trying to address through demining efforts. Right. So that is uh, I cannot predict what will happen, but I fear. I fear that the that um, that concerns among Western decision makers about what will happen if Russia falls apart is resulting in holding back all of the weapon systems that could have been provided. The West has these weapon systems. They have plenty of them. They know they will not need to use them anytime soon if Ukraine is able to defeat the Russian invasion. They know this, and yet they're not providing it. And the only the only explanation that seems to explain that in a rational way is the one, is the explanation given by this French journalist. So part two of my answer to you about predicting. We believe, at least I believe, that it doesn't help me do, do my work in this NGO and media aid to provide uh, funds to service providers to help the front lines. It doesn't help me do that by worrying about the future, by worrying about the analysis, by worrying about what this French journalist said. It doesn't help me. If anything, it'll simply make me more worried and anxious and, and, and draw away my time and draw away my attention. So I've deliberately decided to read moderately. And if I read an analysis like this, which does not give me hope, that, that the invasion will be defeated this year or maybe the year after. And when I read analyses that, de- that, uh, that uh, suggest that the presidential election will give a result that will be very contrary to the interests of supporting Ukraine, I try not to pause on that. I try not to ruminate on it. I try not to think about it. I try not to, not to form my own opinions about that. Instead, I've heard it 
And in a mindful way, I let it go because the future will be what it will be based on someone else's decisions. Instead, I feel that we and others uh, who wish to participate in the NGO space or in this particular arena of helping Ukraine need to focus on what they can do, on what they can control. We can control one thing. We can look for sources of funds. We can find the service providers. We can establish relationships with the end users. And we can make sure that the end users get the equipment and training they need to protect themselves, right? That's what we can focus upon. And so while I read these articles and I'm worried about the question you've asked, I try deliberately to avoid being distracted by it and by my worries about the 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 answer to your question. So. Yeah, we are basically getting to this same advice of, of trying to concentrate on what we are capable of doing and trying not to worry over general things. In Ukraine, there is um, a great uh, stand-upper. Uh, his name is Anton Timoshenko. And in his last concert, he had a part where he talked about some over-optimistic views, like, you know, you can... Uh, listen to the radio and I will talk about the the victory mood. He said, I don't want to be in the victory mood. I don't want to hope for, for the thing that I'm unsure about. I want to be in the fighting mood. I want to be able to to focus on what I can do every day and don't want to be distracted, as you said. And yeah, I really feel that this is the kind of mood that, that is most productive in any situation, in, even in such a objectively complicated situation. But still, we can uh, we can find a lot of accomplishments, as Lesa said. That the fact that Ukraine withstood um, this this barbarous invasion uh, already for two years and had lots of successes in this fight is really remarkable. Uh, as a last question, uh, I just want to ask you for a few words of advice uh, to our listeners, uh, to public policy students and young professionals. What would be your advice as, as people who uh, yourself uh, have this experience of working in public service and as people who are very dedicated to this public cause? Lesha, do you want to start? <laughs> you know that I speak long yeah. on that question. <laughs> yes, uh, thank you. Uh, well, I think it's uh, uh, quite uh, normal uh, and has been for a while, at least a decade, if not two, uh, for people to look to their future and work on their career in a, in a fairly fluid fashion. And it's important not to be afraid of that and to reach out uh, to various individuals, to network, to always be in touch with people and, and discuss um, options, uh, opportunities, and to not be afraid to change uh, entirely one's, uh, you know, um, area of specialization, for example. Of course, it's important to finish one thing properly and do it well, uh, and then to look for, uh, you know, new challenges. And uh, I think, uh, you know, a number of us here are uh, retired, and so we've had uh, uh, fairly uh, interesting careers uh, that have not, uh, you know, been linear in the sense uh, and, and in the way that our, you know, the careers of our parents may have been, and certainly our grandparents. Um, and, and so that's the advice I would give because, uh, this war also, uh, I think highlights the, 
the fact that we 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 get we have new challenges uh, that that come upon us uh, oftentimes unexpectedly. We have crises uh, that we have to deal with, and dealing uh, with that um, with others and on a on a path that uh, is not uh, predetermined and, and and easy to uh, foresee. Uh, is uh, is is that 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 agility, that flexibility uh, is very important, whether it's for an organization uh, or for the individual. Mm-hmm. I uh, I really enjoy talking to students on to answer that question because I think what you're really asking, my interpretation of your question is the following. My interpretation of your question is, what should I, as a student of Oxford in public policy, do? to be effective after I finish my studies, to do with what I'm doing here in Oxford studying principles of public policy and how do I apply that? So for me, I interpret that as a question not so much related to the war, the Russians' invasion in Ukraine or what we're doing as an NGO, but a much more general question about help us, guide us, and how we proceed further to have a fulfilling life. So let me, uh, to answer the question, I'm going to refer to three authors. And these three authors, I think, I there's lots of really good advice out there. And as students of Oxford, you guys know how to find good books, how to read them, and how to apply them. But I will just highlight three authors uh, that I believe uh, that I, when I'm asked about career advice and how to proceed, I thought were have consolidated some really good suggestions. So the first uh, the first author is Malcolm Gladwell, happens to be a Canadian in this case. That's not why I'm referring to him. But he wrote uh, several very good books, one of which is called Outliers, but there are several others that he, uh, that he wrote in which I think he has captured a lot of good advice about how to focus and develop your competence in an area and how not to be afraid to talk to people about it and to seek advice from others. It just so happens that two professors from Stanford University have picked up on that idea too. In fact, prior to him, that's Bill Burnett and David Evans, professors in the design school at Stanford University, and they developed an extracurricular course, which actually became the most popular course at Stanford University and was then for uh, turned into a series of seminars and a, into a series of books. The books are called Designing Your Life or Designing Your Work Life. Both of the books, uh, essentially, they they show students a number of exercises they could engage in to use principles of design to talk about or think about or plan out their careers. And so I believe that they, they, have a very, they provide very good advice, one of which I want to just uh, highlight here, and that is that you cannot think your way to your future. You cannot think your way to what you think you would like to do. You actually have to try it. The point of design is trial and error. You try, you test. If it doesn't work out, you try again until you get something that works out. And they provide some very good exercises in which you as students could try in your careers various roles, various responsibilities, various working environments until you sense what it is that really engages you and, and energizes you rather than saps your energy. So I, I, to answer your question mm-hmm. directly, if there's one book to read, read their book, Designing Your Life. The final author that I would give to you does not sound like it relates to career advice, but I happen to give it because I actually do believe 
that if a person wants to be successful professionally in their career, they have to also be successful or good in their personal life and establish relationships in their personal life that will work and be sustainable. There are many authors on that. I, gosh, I don't know. I, I can rattle off a number of authors that have written good books, but I will make only reference to one name, Esther Perel. Esther Perel is a psychoanalyst, uh, Belgium in, in origin. Uh, she's written several good books. And if I was to recommend only one author, it would be her to talk about what you need to do as a person to establish relationships with your the, the life partner that you choose or others so that, so that those relationships support you in your career. Well, not for that purpose. Let me just be very clear. It's not to establish a relationship with your life partner in order to be successful in whatever career you choose. But it is to say, if you don't establish a good relationship with your partner, if you don't change yourself, not change them, but change yourself in becoming a life partner for, for, for the person that you choose, then you will be distracted tremendously distracted from whatever goals you set out uh, for yourself as a career and in your progression. So do yourself a favor and start with her, her books and her articles or her TED Talks and whatnot and go from there and seek out to become really expert in relationships. You know, it's funny. We all study. We all acquire degrees. We all do all kinds of professional training. And yet we expect to be good in relationships without actually studying it. It's a true fallacy. We think that we are naturally good at relationships. And yet we just have to look around at literature, at the canon of literature and movies and to know that that is not the case. And so if we want to beat the odds and not become one of one examples of the multitude of literature out there about how relationships fall apart, we really have to do something about that. So... Esther Perel is the place that I would say you should start. Noted. Thank you so much for these well-substantiated recommendations. My advice is uh, not going to be very popular, but my advice is fail. And fail constantly so that you learn from these things. Um, it, there's so many people who have never experienced failure, so they don't have to self-reflect. They never have to look inwards. And that is an absolute blind spot for them when they're at work, when they're working in, in the sphere of public policy. You have to be an extremely well-rounded individual. You have to have diverse interests. Um, you, because public policy is not just one topic. It's a plethora of these things. And all of these things have to fit together, ultimately for the benefit of the public. So as a student, I recommend fail. I recommend know thyself. Know what your strengths are. Know what your weaknesses are so that you can temper your strengths so they don't become blind spots and so that you can develop your weaknesses so you're more balanced. Um, when I was at work, I always hired to my weaknesses. Always, always, always. Because my, my strengths would carry them and their strengths would carry me. So know thyself, know thy team, but fail and do it rapidly. Great. Thank you so much for this pieces of advice. This is really useful. And thanks for a great conversation. Um, it was a really pleasure to host you, Mark, Lysa and Thank you. 
Thank you, Eric, for your interest. And uh, we really did enjoy uh, uh, conversing with you, answering your questions. And uh, uh, we're always open and available as anyone else wishes to, to reach out to us. We're, we're more than happy to do so. Thank you very much, Eric.